Welcome back for another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. With me today, I am joined by Emily Ruth Verona. She is the Pinch Literary Award winner and Bram Stoker Awards nominee of work featured in magazines and anthologies that include Under Her Eye, Mystery Tribune, The Gastling, Coffin Bell, Rust and Moth, The Jewish Book of Horror, and Nightmare Magazine. Her debut thriller, Midnight on Beacon Street, is available now from Harper Perennial. She lives in New Jersey with a small dog. Welcome, Emily. Hi, Trevor. Nice to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, for one thing, not included in your little bio, is you wrote a story for us over at Slate House. I did. Yes, I did. I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't sure if, if that goes in the bio. If it then sounds like a conflict of interest, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a conflict of. I'm very interested, so I feel no conflict <laughs> there for sure. Oh. No, no, I, I'm really excited um, to talk to you for so many reasons. Um, I was very privileged to meet with you last year at StokerCon, where we had lunch yeah. with Brian McCauley. Um, I sat in on your reading for the first chapter of Midnight on Beacon Street, um, which absolutely put you on my radar. I was like, oh. this sounds really, really good. And then the more I read of your stuff, the more I'm like, what a singular talent you are in this industry. So I'm, I'm stoked to talk to you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah. That, that, that reading was, was, was terrifying for me. I forgot to introduce myself at the beginning of it. Like I was so nervous. (laughs) I realized halfway through the reading, I hadn't said my name at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it so much. I feel like a lot of this, uh, forgive me, this nervous energy bleeds out into your fiction. And it's oh, one absolutely. of the things that just gives it so much dimension for me. I mean, the the reason why I love your work is because you weave in so much emotional impact with your characters and it gives them a voice and a, an authenticity that I think you just, you can't find elsewhere. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I, it's I I was diagnosed with OCD um, very young, and I've had OCD and uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and, and anxiety my whole life. And uh, one of the things in writing I've always wanted to do is is depict them in a way way that feels authentic to my experience. Sure. Um, and just I guess kind of find find ways to make them relatable because sometimes when you're in it on your own and you're just dealing with your own you know mental health stuff you're like I feel insane I am insane no one will understand this well you and you bring up a really great point there uh which is actually some of the focus of what I wanted to talk to you about because this book Midnight on Beacon Street is all about trying to cope with anxiety you know and trying to cope with I think some very difficult feelings when you don't necessarily have the structure in your own life, the perspective to really work through that. So I I think that it's great that you're doing this kind of work because it opens up a door to to conversing, you know, like presenting a kind of community to other readers who maybe feel the same way. 
do do you feel like you have encountered any media in your life that helped you begin to to get some perspective on on who you are and how you feel i've always been deeply compelled by like tragedy and drama in um fiction and film and one of the things i've always really noticed is at least a lot of what i've read and been drawn to um, whatever the main character is going through, there's usually like a significant trauma behind it. That's kind of mm. um, pushing, you know, like ha- uh, influencing how they feel now. And that's incredibly compelling and incredibly valid. Sometimes you just have like screwed up wires in your brain and it's not <laughs> the result of anything except your like genetic lottery. And, and I've always wanted to explore that because it's, it's, just a very bizarre experience and I don't think you see it especially in horror you don't see like mental health just because Mm -hmm. in a lot of fiction yeah I've had this conversation with Jeremy over at Slay House pretty often uh, because one of his novels that was published and and then that we published through Slay House dealt with um, a character who had schizophrenia and he's really motivated to try to, you know, to pick some mental health issues in a way that maybe feels a little bit more authentic. And I think that representation is really important, especially as, you know, speaking as a millennial, I think that my generation certainly was not very well diagnosed. Um, and, And even now, with all of the advancement that we've made in psychological sciences and, you know, kind of understanding the working of the brain, we are still missing, I mean, whole groups of, of kids, you know, who probably need these diagnoses, but we ignore some of those signs um, mm-hmm. and we, we don't talk about it so much. I feel like there's a group of individuals now gathering through social media and especially on TikTok who are kind of narrativizing their lives um, in a way, you know, through these videos and bringing more awareness perhaps to the, the, the neurodiversity that is present in a lot more people than you think. Definitely. Yeah. I've, I, my, um, my oldest niece insisted that I had to join TikTok um, for, for, <laughs> for the book and such. And I, I've been on it. And um, in addition to, watching a lot of like animal videos um i i've been seeing a lot of uh like different mental health and the, those um what are they called the i'm you know blank yeah and you see it you see it a lot from like millennials and like the generation slightly younger yeah i i think it performs an important service in you know kind of bringing awareness to things ironically i i've been talking a lot about my own neurodivergence and about autism, you know, as I, I continue to learn more about myself um, and I, I learn more about the way that my autism, you know, kind of shapes my life. But oddly enough, I, I don't think I ever would have been put on the trail to take it really seriously without Chuck Tingle um, and and his book this summer. Weirdly enough, I, I read that book. And he had talked, you know, kind of on his talk circuit a lot about how uh, Camp Damascus was being received really well by those um, on the spectrum. And in reading that book, I kind of got mad because I was like, where, where is the spectrum represented in here? I don't understand. 
all of this seems like pretty normal stuff. And, and it's really because like, I only experienced my life with autism. And so I see a character who has autism, <laughs> like experiencing things, working through things. I see the way that her mind works and I didn't make the click <laughs> because my mind works that same way. I, I had presumed that he had gotten it wrong somehow. <laughs> The only reason I think I've been so self-aware and like kind of reflective of that and mindful of that and writing about that um, for as long as I have is because my mom is a therapist. So um, she like recognized like very early that like there was something going on with me and um, like had it, you know, checked out and stuff. And like, I used to, I used to like do weird things on the playground and then kids would be like, what's that? I'm like, oh, that's my OCD. Let me tell you what OCD is. (laughs) (laughs) Because, because, because I was a talker and liked to share. (laughs) I love that though. I I feel like that's great to take that kind of ownership. Um, Yeah. And, and I, to bring it back to your fiction, I feel like your fiction does this really well. The The representation of these feelings matters, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it matters to readers like me who are always trying to f- figure out more of, you know, how, how can I see an example of, of this reflected in someone's life? And maybe they're fictional people, um, mm-hmm. but that perspective still helps. And I think, yeah. too, that those who feel the same things as you feel and feel the same things as your characters see themselves reflected in those spaces and allows themselves to, you know, feel like they're seen, feel like they're not so alone in this journey of trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to navigate life with these kind of hurdles. I, I, I just remembered as, as you were talking, when you asked um, about uh, uh, seeing like myself represented in the aviator is the movie I was trying to think of before. Um, the aviator is the first time I saw OCD represented in a way that made sense to me um, because it was represented in prior to that in very quirky and like comedic ways that often bothered me. And the aviator is actually can actually at times be painful to watch. And I found that deeply mm. realistic. Yeah. I was having the same or or a similar conversation with Sonny Morin um, about a month ago about, you know, the representation of OCD in uh, their book that is coming out in February. Mm-hmm. I haven't released that episode yet, but mm-hmm. it, it will come out in February. We talk about. Um, I haven't heard of that yet. What book? Oh, my gosh. Uh, what is the book <laughs> called? Your Shadow Half Remains. Mm-hmm. Ooh. by Sun- Sunny Moraine. It's coming out from uh, Nightfire. And it, oh, it's, that's exciting. Yeah, it's a really interesting book for, for many reasons. But one of the things I really love about it is that it kind of allegorizes the experience of having OCD. And mm-hmm. I, I just really vibed with it. I thought it was a really great yeah. book. Well, um, that's so exciting. I don't, I don't see that a lot because uh, like I know... Um, my favorite, my favorite instance of OCD representation is uh, J. A. W. McCarthy's "Girls Tied to Trees." Okay, um, I'm gonna write. I absolutely that down. love that. Yeah, it's well, it's in her, um, it's in her uh, uh, collections. Uh, uh, Sometimes we're cruel in other stories. Okay, and it's 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 really good. I love everything they do. I'm gonna have to look it up because um, 
I can never stop myself from reading a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk about Midnight on Beacon Street um, a little bit more pointedly because I I absolutely adore this book. Um, I read it and immediately after reading it, I kind of put it down and was like, I think this is a top 10 book of the year and it's only January. Mm. Um, it's, Thank you. No, it's that good. And I'm not alone in that feeling too. I know that I I put it on social media and I think it was Anna Dupre. Uh, she came, it, it kind of slid into my DMs and was, and was like, tell me about this book. Uh, Cause I, I think I'm going to read it next. Did you like it? And I said, yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts. We talked about it for days afterwards um, because it's just, Emily, it's so good. <laughs> So if you if you don't mind, I would love to hear from you. Just what is Midnight on Beacon Street about? Um, and then we can start talking about some of the stuff that this book does. Uh, well, Midnight on Beacon Street is set in 1993. And it is the story of a teenage babysitter who's looking after these two kids while their mom's out on a date for the night. Um, and the babysitter has a lot of anxiety loves horror movies. Um, and at the top of the book, it's midnight and the little boy that she's watching is standing in a pool of blood in the kitchen. Um, and so the rest of the book goes back and forth between his perspective and the babysitter's perspective to fill in the blanks of what happened throughout that evening. I love so many things about this, especially because I feel like babysitter fiction and especially like babysitter or thrillers, babysitter. I love horror. it so much. Oh my gosh. It's one of my favorite tropes. So uh, I love I it mean, so much. Yeah. Hit me up. Like, I want to hear what, what appeals to you about the babysitter fiction? Like, why was this the story that you just had to get out? There's just something about like hanging out in a suburban town, like on, you know, a Friday night or something and things going wrong that I just find really, really compelling, regardless of the time <laughs> period. <laughs> like, I don't know. I And I think also, like, especially like those kinds of stories, since they're so rooted in like being in someone's home, you get like really strong vibes for whatever era it's it takes place in, whether it's oh, set, yeah. what like whether it's set in the time period it's being made or written or whether it's set, you know, at a different time. Like you just, you really get a sense of it in a way that I find really compelling to watch. I also just generally love um, super like confined set and time movies mm -hmm. uh, like the Alfred Hitchcock movie Rope that takes place entirely in the course of one afternoon in an apartment. Um, I love stuff like that. So the op opportunity to write a book that all takes place during the course of one night was really exciting to me. So your main character, Amy, uh, the, the babysitter, is a huge fan of horror film um and, yeah. and horror movies and i find that to be a really interesting kind of meta commentary because she's in this kind of babysitter horror moment yeah but she's so aware of the babysitter horror tropes and and kind of movements of horror so i want to kind of open up to you a little bit how does horror speak to you about some of these bigger issues of life and and how do we comfortably engage with horror knowing that it is a fear-inducing medium 
or, or genre, fear-inducing genre, when we are, ourselves might have a lot of anxiety? I drew a lot of Amy's um, relationship with horror uh, from my own. And um, I've, I've always felt like horror is like, it's it's like a roller coaster. It gives you a, an excuse and a reason to feel these exhilarating fear feelings without it b- being like, like it makes them predictable and confined and safe in like a way that, that as someone who's anxious all the time, I find really comforting because it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to sit down and for an hour and a half and watch this movie. And not only am I going to be safe while doing it, but all of the anxiety I feel while I'm watching it is going to feel extremely valid because it's actually supposed to be scary. So, so the anxiety I feel all day long for an hour and a half is normal because even people who don't have anxiety can, you know, have like their heart, you know, heartbeat uh, get a little faster when they watch a horror movie. I love that. I love that a lot. Um, And I think you're right. I feel like in in a way, having some kind of a media to interact with, it it can, can act like we're controlling the situation. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I I feel like a lot of anxiety is worrying about the things that you can't necessarily control outside of yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, correct me if, if, I'm wrong in in how anxiety kind of feels to you sometimes, but I know for me, it, it often manifests in a sense of dread over the things that I can't control. I tend to obsess over the things I can control, or at least the things I think I can control, Mm. um, and tend to be calmer when I know things are out of my control. So like, I will be an absolute wreck, like, catching a train because like I could miss the train I could get off at the wrong stop like I could totally screw it up um and I'll panic uh I can drive home during a snowstorm and be entirely fine because I'm like you know what I can't do anything about the weather it's there (laughs) so how does this kind of manifest for Amy through this really harrowing night in uh in the novel she she goes through she goes through a lot of feelings And they're kind of all over the place. And I think one of the things that kind of maybe helps her um, focus is that so much is going on that it keeps her busy. And as long as she's busy, she feels kind of distracted from the anxiety. Like as long as she's looking after the kids, she can put them before her own feelings. Mm. And so she really dives into that and makes, you know, the whole, um, you know, making sure they have a good time and they feel safe and looked after the the focus for the night. There's kind of an empowerment through authority there present throughout the book that, again, I find really compelling and interesting. Uh, And yet Amy constantly kind of self-doubts herself as she Mm -hmm. makes these decisions. Um, There, I don't want to spoil anything in the book because it's so, so good. But there are multiple moments throughout the book when she is faced by something that I think even under the best of circumstances would be so difficult to deal with. And she's constantly having to navigate this space of like the interior anxiety and this exterior, you know, show of authority. Mm. And there's a lot of conflict there for her that I find to, to be really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. She has a lot of choice paralysis, which, which I think, I think, I think a lot of people can, can can relate to 
at least people I know who who have anxiety or who are neurodiverse. Ben is another character in this book for whom we get a point of view. Mm. And I I really enjoy Ben's point of view as it correlates to Amy's point of view because Ben suffers from a lot of the same stuff, but he doesn't have the same vocabulary to really express some of the feelings that he has. So mm. how did you come to write Ben? What were some of the concerns that you had for crafting this character? Um, well, when I started writing Midnight on Beacon Street, I was... Um actually uh working as uh like my uh I was being a nanny for my um nieces my sister's kids um so I would uh pick them up from school and do homework with them uh several days a week and they were you know between the ages of like you know five and 11 during this time um and I think a lot of being eight like any any authenticity that Mira and Ben have as as children and sounding like real children is from spending day to day to day with my nieces and just kind of watching them like interact with the world and interact with me and you know having conversations with them all the time i love the level of craft that you devote to ben's voice because he he sounds so much differently than amy mm. in those parts of the book do you feel like for you, a lot of that came through the revision process, or or do you feel like a lot of Ben's voice developed for you just in the drafting? Um, I think a lot of it was there in the drafting. I do during drafting, and then also um, when I'm revising, uh, if I have more than one point of view character, like to pay extra close attention so that their point of views feel very different from each other. Um, I, I always worry that it sounds like the same person is writing both voices, uh, which I know I am, but I, I want them to sound, I want I want you to be able to flip to the middle of their chapter and be able to tell which character it is without mm. necessarily having to like go back. It's such a unique skill. It's like so hard to pull off in fiction. Well, I, I, I grew up, um, like I, as a small child, wanted to write novels and I wanted to write screenplays. I was really into movies too. So dialogue has always been something that I'm really, really fascinated with. And I think that probably has a big impact on that. Oh yeah. No, I, I can totally see all of it in, in the, the work as it's presented. So you, you mentioned that you had some experience as a nanny, mm -hmm. um, for your, for your, uh, niece and nephew. My nieces, yeah. Or well, niece, I, yeah. I'm sorry, your nieces. Yeah. Do you have any other, you know, kind of babysitting experience that that informed some of the choices that you made for Amy and Ben? I did not have a lot of babysitting experience growing up. It always kind of terrified me this notion of being responsible for somebody else's children. Um, <laughs> but I I'm the youngest of three children, and my brother and sister were both teenagers when I was born. Oh. So um, there's a huge age gap. And so my brother um, had his first kid when I was 12. And so I've been an aunt since I was 12. And I've spent a lot of time watching his kids and my sister's kids and being an aunt to them and watching them grow up and stuff. And I think a lot of all of my my like babysitting adjacent uh, experience comes from spending so much time with them. While I was writing it, I was telling my nieces about it, um, but they were children, so I wasn't telling them it was a murder mystery. Uh, so, but, but 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 I'd like occasionally be like, oh, you know, like they'd ask, you know, what I was doing. I'm like, oh, I'm trying to, you know, figure out, you know, what to do with this character. And so I'd, you know, like 
you know, tell them some stuff, but I couldn't say it was a murder mystery because they were five. So uh, I said it was about a missing purse. I just said it was a mystery, like a, a purse was missing and they had to figure out who did it. And um, so that way, you know, I could be like, oh, you know, I'm not sure, you know, who the villain should be. And uh, I, I actually had them give suggestions at one point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, they only, they only found out that it was a murder mystery, um, a couple months ago. And my youngest niece was astounded that I lied to them. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun. As a, a kind of contribution to babysitter horror and, and babysitter thrillers, you know, what were some of the concerns that you had coming into the book that, you know, like a trope you wanted to address or ideas that you really wanted to, to explore specifically with the language of this subgenre? I guess my biggest concern was writing a babysitter that had already been written before. I wanted her, I wanted, even though it's, even though she as a character and throughout the book, we talk about babysitter a lot and we talk about specifically Halloween a lot throughout the book um, I wanted her to feel like a very distinct own person and not I, I liked having a lot of nods to Halloween but I didn't want to feel like I was just repeating Halloween yeah I think that's the one that everyone remembers um, hmm. even when I was reading through the book I was trying to think through because I've seen a lot of these movies but but a lot of the time it boils down to it's like Halloween and then when a stranger calls like mm. those are kind of the two I, I feel that dominate this space the most mm. and yet your book felt oh gosh it felt so real to life in a way that really took me back because I I don't often expect that of this particular subgenre to to really mirror the experience of being a babysitter I had a lot of experience as a babysitter growing up um I, I babysat for several different families in my neighborhood. And um, some of the kids were only a couple of years old, like maybe three. And then some of them, you know, kind of aged up to, to 11 or 12. And they were also different and needed kind of different things from mm. me as I was, you know, watching them and, and you know, taking care of them. Um, and so much of that, experience felt like viscerally real to me as I was reading this book. Like there were some moments of the book where I'm like, I've had that happen to me. <laughs> and so, I mean, like credit to you that this book feels so real. I mean, I, 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 I could have handed it to someone else and been like, this is nonfiction. <laughs> you know, just, it feels well, so authentic. You. Yeah. I think I think one of the things that probably helped a lot with that too is that I like I I, I said it in um, ninety three specifically because I wanted to set it uh, around Jurassic Park coming out so Ben could like Jurassic Park. That was that was that was literally my thought process for the for because I knew I wanted to set it in the early nineties and so in picking mm -hmm. a year I was like well you know what Ben just saw Jurassic Park, um, but uh, too young obviously because it was the nineties um, and uh, and um, but. I think what one of one of the I think things that helped is that I I'm kind of I was kind of in between like like I've spent a lot of time babysitting my my nieces and my nephew um but in the early 90s I was more Ben's age so I remember being a child being babysat in the 90s 
very well too. And I think that helped a lot in kind of in, in, re in remembering it from like the kid's perspective and then also addressing it from the babysitter's perspective. Cause mm -hmm. I, I was babysat a lot as a kid, either by neighborhood kids or my brother and sister would be tasked with watching me and my sister would watch me at home and my brother would just bring me wherever it was he was going. I think I'm really fascinated with, with kind of like in between times where nothing is seemingly happening. So like when, you know, mm. like when you're, you know, when you have like a, you know, a babysitter over for, you know, on a Friday night, like the babysitter and the kids aren't, you know, doing a ton. They're just hanging out. And it's just kind of almost an experience to like sit back and watch them in their own environment. And I find that to be really, really interesting. I've always been big on people watching. But that's such an interesting idea in fiction because I don't know. I feel like so much of media doesn't show us much of that in between time, unless it exists simply to kind of build up like, you know, they're dancing in the, the hallway, but then there's like a creepy guy who's standing outside the window watching mm -hmm. them, you know, or something like that. We so rarely just get characters who are given space to just be you know, just just kind of breathe, and yet this is something that your your book and and your other fiction, you know, does so well. It's it's like combining this character building with the the kind of tedium of uh, you know just kind of moment to moment. And, and your 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 work's not tedious. It's but I mean, you know what I mean? Like just the the day to day presence. I love just well. Well, I often because whenever like I'll get really into like a TV show or something. And um, I'll, I'll always want those brief moments where they're just kind of doing something entirely irrelevant to the plot to last longer. Like, mm. I always want to see more of that because I always just want to kind of live in their world a little bit. Like mm. I, Lord of the Rings could add two and a half hours to the Shire of just hanging out there and I would be okay with it <laughs> because I just want, I just, I just, I love, I don't, I don't know if I want to call it slice of life, but I love like just kind of like peeking in and like seeing mm. things unfold, even if they're not particularly pressing or high stakes. I feel like character is built there though. You mm. know, like we talk about, or or at least I've told you how much I think that this book feels real to life. And I think part of that is because you put that sort of downtime in the book where we, we just get to connect with these characters mm -hmm. in in a way that is so authentic and fulfilling mm -hmm. to fiction um oh gosh i just love it <laughs> well i also think i also think it's important to see characters when they're not engaging in like all of the all of the really exciting because i think it's i think it's more compelling to see um how they react during really stressful scenes and interactions in comparison to knowing how they act when absolutely mm. nothing is going mm. on. When we see too the way that they carry themselves and think about themselves and then the way that they act and and the way that they actually are, that's a big question that the, I think the book poses is kind of um, how do we deal with the things that we feel? How do we take authority, for example, over anxiety and and i i think part of that is like in order to establish it perhaps you have to have 
characters who are able to kind of live and we're able to kind of see who they are when the the threat level is low you know mm -hmm. like we get to see where they are and who they are as they just go about their lives and it creates a baseline for them mm -hmm. so that way yeah. as as things happen you know you know where they are when they're set you know at neutral yes yeah i it's you do this so beautifully in all of your fiction i i just absolutely adore it it's so good gosh i i I want to talk so much more about this book, but I, I feel like if I go any further, I'm just going to spoil everything in it. <laughs> my, my, my favorite movies have always been, and I think that thus I've, I've written a book that it's in order to talk about the fun stuff about it, you have to ruin all of the things that happen in it. And, <laughs> and, and so, and so it's just like, like there are movies that I love that I can't explain to people why they should watch them. Because if I did, it, it would, it would give the entire movie away. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yes. I totally understand that. Well, perhaps instead of just talking about the many things that happen in this book and, and why everyone just, just read this book. <laughs> Seriously. It's so good. Um, but perhaps do you have maybe some comp recs from movies that you you drew from you know maybe people should go out and and like look for these little things i i've always been the first like teen slasher movie i can remember watching with any kind of clarity is scream and i absolutely love it um i i realized when i said it so this book so early in the 90s that i wouldn't be able to reference scream at all um, which was rough, but I think also ultimately for the best, because if you get too self-referential in the self-referential, mm. I, I just, I, I might've spiraled a little, um, <laughs> but I have absolutely always loved, uh, Scream. Um, I'm a huge fan of, uh, Halloween for all the same reasons that Amy is, uh, the scenes she points out are scenes that I personally have spent a lot of time thinking about. It's, absolutely nothing like this but i do think everyone should watch the babysitter on netflix with samara uh, weaving i do love that movie because it is so much fun it is an absolute delight yeah it is it is such a fun off the walls babysitter movie and it's just i i think it's i think i think it's a classic i just love it so much yeah i love the way too that you kind of keep this subgenre fresh you um, don't just take one trope and then do the same thing that we've seen over and over again. Um, how did you, you know, kind of consider these kind of classic hallmarks of this subgenre and what to incorporate? And then what was really just your story that you really wanted to tell? Well, um, I started writing the book and I continued writing it for on and off for three years and then I shelved it for a really long time um and then I kind of got back on it and honestly that was the reason it took so long was trying to kind of craft like a babysitter story that felt authentic and interesting and unique in its own way in comparison to all of the films that the book was referencing and I think that's why because I I stalled out on the last third of the book um for like a couple of years like I just didn't know how to write it like I knew mm. where I wanted to get but I didn't know how to get there that's so interesting to me because I the book feels so cohesive and I know a lot of that is like you know 
you do a lot of that in the revision process. Um, but it's so beautifully poignant. It it it's so clear in in its tackling of issues like anxiety, tackling its issues of trauma, and how we kind of give ourselves over to these things and how we fight back against them too. Um, it's such a heartfelt book. I, I maybe I should just spend ten minutes and just tell you how much I loved it and why. But um, I I just can't get over this book and how beautiful it was. Heart was heart was one of the because I I had I had some absolutely wonderful beta readers and um, my agent you know obviously read it my editor read it and um, one of the things I got back across the board um, was that it it felt like it had a lot of heart in it. And I, I hadn't, it wasn't something I set out to do when I started writing it, but I, I started to see how much that meant to people as I was getting feedback on it. I just wanted them to feel real. I just wanted, I, I, I just, in approaching each of them, just wanted to kind of follow the thread of what felt authentic to them. And then I kind of worried about like structure and format and like arc after that, but mm. kind of following the through line of who they were as people kind of came first. Well, it gives the book so much strength. <laughs> so for those who are really interested in finding out more about your fiction, uh, where can they follow you online? Ah, well, um, because we now live in a world with a thousand social media platforms, um, I am Emily R. Verona at most of them, uh, including Twitter, Threads, Instagram, and Blue Sky, um, and now TikTok, because my oldest niece had me join TikTok. <laughs> um, and uh, I also have a website, uh, www.emilyruthverona.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and visiting with me. Thank you so much for writing this book. Um, it's it's just, oh, it's such a beauty. I really, really can't wait for people to get their hands on this book uh, because it's so wonderful. And I'm so excited about future projects. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah.